You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is made possible by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're encouraging you to always be in the front seat when it comes to your money. Discover how at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So how are you feeling about your retirement savings? Not to open the show with a thud or anything, but we know that so many Americans are fearful that they're not on track. Many are afraid they'll run out of money in retirement. Many are wondering whether they'll be able to even retire at all. We've got some new research from Morningstar that shows only about a quarter of working American households are on track to have what they need for retirement. But what about the other 75%? That is why today we are discussing strategies, we're discussing solutions, and we're doing it with the head of behavioral science at Morningstar, Dr. Steve Wendell. And Steve is a behavioral social scientist. He studies specifically how digital products can help individuals manage our money more effectively. He's also the author of a couple of books, Designing for Behavior Change and Improving Employee Benefits. And he's got a new paper out all about easing the retirement crisis. In fact, that is the title of the paper. Steve, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you. It is a real joy to join you today. Oh, well, thank you very, very much. I, I got to say, I'm a little, we, um, sometimes we record this podcast with a guest live in the studio. Sometimes we bring people in on Skype, but this is the first time that I've got a guest on Skype that I can actually see because the screen is now live and happening in my studio. I can see myself too, which by the way, I do not like one bit, but <laughs> I like that I can see you because it makes it feel like you're right here, although you are superimposed on an image of the Colorado Rockies. Oh, wow. Sadly, sadly, I have a I have a boring whiteboard behind me. But nevertheless, it is wonderful to, to talk with you and to see you and, and, and really have a conversation. What made you dive into the retirement crisis right now? I mean, you talk to different people, and some people say there is a crisis. Some people say there's not a crisis. Why did you decide to take this look at things? Sure. Well, really for two reasons. Um, one, because of that confusion, because of the fact that there is this discussion, and as a researcher, I want to, I want to understand what's really going on and how can thoughtful, well-meaning people on both sides completely disagree. And the other is, is, is from prior work and, and from, from my own life. I just see how important this is, and I see the, the struggles that, that people go through. And I want to see how can our research, how can our work at Morningstar, how can we help? Where do you come out on the retirement crisis question? Is there one? Sure. So um, I think after talking with, with a variety of other researchers in the field, I think it's best to think of two different ways of analyzing the crisis. One is from a policy perspective. In aggregate, how much money are all Americans, how much American society falling short, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one number. 
the other side is individually, are you prepared? Now, the difference between these two, well, you opened it with a thud, so I'm going to make it even worse. The difference between the two is death. What do you mean? So, yeah. So this is why there's such a debate in the field. It has to do with mortality. So at a policy level, if somebody, well, sadly dies at 50, then by definition, they're fine for retirement. Right. Okay. That makes sense. At an individual level, well, that's you want to plan for a good, healthy, long retirement. And so a lot of the big dire numbers are about how people haven't prepared. Those dire numbers get much less dire when you say, well, uh, people are going to die before they reach 85. And so they don't need that money. The problem is we don't know who is going to who is going to pass on early. And so that's some of the confusion. We're really talking about two different things. Well, and when we're talking about those two different things as an individual planning for my own financial life, there's only one of those things that I can control. I can't control how everybody else in the country saves for retirement. I can't control whether there are people out there who have not been to the doctor for a checkup since 1983. I can control that I go to the doctor and that I save enough. So from my perspective, that's where we want people to focus. Exactly. And, And too much of the debate has been about these two very different and thoughtful models. But honestly, from an individual perspective, it's the second one that matters. And from an individual perspective, how bad is the situation? It, it's, it's, it really is quite dire. It really is. I mean, it's, I hate to say scary, but, but it is for me personally, just thinking about our, myself, thinking about our family, thinking about society. And we look at everyday American households, and, and for this study, we look at working households, so not the portion who are currently unemployed or, or in retirement. We see that only 25% are on track to have a moderate amount of income, about 70% of what they currently have while they're working. Only about a quarter of them are on track to have what they need. And that's in normal market conditions. When we look at what happens under under negative scenarios, say a bad market, uh, we call it 20% outcome, um, that that goes down to about 18% of the public. That's really very serious. So when we talk about behavioral finance and behavioral economics. If you look up a definition on encyclopedia, it's going to give you a mouthful of terminology that you may or may not want to process. In my mind, (laughs) behavioral economics is the study of why smart people do stupid things with money. And nobody listening to this podcast has not been told save more, save more, save more, save more. Nobody. And and nobody in the country has not been told, save more, invest for tomorrow, just like they have been told umpteen times, eat less, exercise more, right? Everybody knows what to do and nobody does it. Or very mm-hmm. few people, 25% of people do it. So what's what gets in our way of doing the right things? I think that, and that is a great question. That really is behavioral science in a nutshell. Why don't we do the things that we want to do, especially when we know they're good for us? And so when you think about retirement, I think about it in three buckets. First of all, the planning side. We often don't plan well because the future just, it just isn't real in the same way that this table 
right? This moment, the things around us are real. And so our minds quite naturally focus on the things around us rather than this strange hypothetical future 10, 20, whatever years in the ahead. So that's one challenge. Second, when we do start to plan, we're just, we're just not great at math. We're not great at understanding fundamentally exponential growth and what compound interest means and what stock market growth means. We just don't get it. Now, as behavioral scientists, we have studies and, and, and names around these, and we're, we're generally not very creative. So, for example, the one I just mentioned is known as exponential growth bias. Fine. But there are lots of those biases that fall into why we don't plan effectively. The third bucket is after we have a plan, well, we're just not always great at following it. That's the gap between our intentions and our actions. That's our good old-fashioned procrastination. Mm-hmm. That's our inattention. That's our limited willpower. And so it's in these three buckets that I see how our minds are wired. They don't always serve us well for planning and really acting on saving for retirement. Okay, so let's take those buckets one by one and let's try to get in the middle, right? I mean, there are things that you can do to help yourself do the right things, to help yourself not only make better decisions, but to do them over and over again. And I know that the research shows that some of those things work better than others. So when it comes to the problem of being a 30-year-old and being told that you got to plan for your 60-year-old self who is a stranger that you don't know and you don't really care about. How do you force, for lack of a better word, yourself (laughs) to do that? Yeah. So when the future isn't real, you can either make the future real or you can say, forget it. Let's talk about the present. To make the future real, there are some fun techniques, and they really are fun, I have to admit, um, like age progression, where you take, and I've done this myself, when you take a picture of yourself and you age progress it to see what you'll look like when you're 65, 75, 85. I've done right? it too, and I don't like looking at those pictures. <laughs> it's, so so one of the authors, of, original authors of the study, um, a guy named Hal Hirschfield. So I've seen him talk about his research, and for privacy reasons, he couldn't show other people's pictures. He had to show his own. And every time he looked at the slides, you could see him just freak out. So it really is. I mean, even even for researchers who do this all the time, it's really powerful. We're not quite comfortable. Like when I look at it, when I looked at that picture, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need to save a whole lot more money for medical expenses, clearly. It makes that future more real. Another way is to draw from other parts of our lives, just visualization exercises. So when we think about retirement, it's vague, it's fuzzy. But if I were to ask you, okay, so in 2035, Mm -hmm. on Thursday, October, whatever, it's three o'clock, you're in your house, you're looking out from your kitchen, what do you see? What have you just done? What are you about to do? What do you look forward to? Talk about your life in that day, in that moment. It changes that. It makes your mind fill in those details of vividness where naturally the world around us gives us that. We can create that for that future moment. And we have something to attach to as we plan. And that makes us more likely to actually take the steps that we need to take. Yes. In fact, in in studies on contribution rates, that helps increase contribution rates. Now, those are all about making that unreal future more real. 
another approach, and I like to I like to use the example of the gym, right? Is okay. Well, maybe I'm not really concerned about the 30-year consequences of whether I do those extra push-ups right now, but I am really concerned about wow, I'm going to look great after this, and so. How do we harness the fact that we are focused about the present, that we do look for near-term benefits uh-huh. in a way that helps us in the long term as well? So in the gym, that's you care about social status. You care about how you look right now. You care about bragging to your friends maybe. Sure, they're negative motivations, but they help us, and, and they're human, and they're real. What does that mean for retirement? Well, man, I want to be like Elon Musk. I want to be like Warren Buffett. I want to have the status. I want to have the prestige. I want to I want to be great in my finances. I want to be on top of it. Yeah, 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 fine. So 30 years down the line, that may also mean that I don't have to eat cat food. That's nice. But really, I'm talking about who I am and, and, and how proud I'll be right now. So you're saying find a role model, somebody you can relate to, and try to emulate them, try to get close to, try to breathe their air. For, for some people, it's going to be role models, right? For other people, it might be not so much role model, but maybe they, they'd like to brag and they want to talk about how they're saving so much money. Is this why when I was at Money Magazine, we did a lot of stories that showed people where they measured up in America, yeah. like, you know, how and I get this in my electric bill, right? I, I get yep. my bill from Con Ed and it shows me how much energy I'm using in comparison to my neighbors. And I always want to see that I'm using less because it makes me feel virtuous. Is that what yep. you're talking about? Yep, that that is that is really powerful. So that um, the Con Ed, it comes from a company called Opower. Um, we're kind of fellow travelers in the field. They've done this behavioral. They've done this research in in the energy space. We actually did it in finance as well. We ran an experiment doing the exact same thing, showing people this, how do you compare to others of similar income, of similar background? We found it to be tremendously impactful to help people focus on their finances and save more. So I wanna talk about how you can actually get your hands on some of that data. Um, if you're starting to try to increase your savings. But before I do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money and conversations and strategies like these is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. No matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're single, married, divorced, just starting to save for retirement or closing in on the finish line, it is vital for all women to be actively engaged in our finances and our investments before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you owe, know what your goals are, and have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's being in your financial front seat. You can learn more about all of this at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be talking to Steve Wendell, Dr. Steve Wendell, head of behavioral science at Morningstar. We were talking about the kind of data that allows us to compare ourselves to others. As in terms of our savings rates, in terms of how we're investing, in terms of the benchmarks we're meeting. How do we get that? So there are a variety of resources. Um, I ran an experiment personally uh, with uh, Hello Wallet, which is a company that Morningstar acquired, where we built this into the software. Right? It's something that you can also find online, and you look and see what are savings rates. Um, it's something you can also learn more about in my paper. 
Now, not in a direct comparison for you. That's a tool that I hope to come out with shortly. But there are a variety of online tools if you look at savings rate for Americans, savings rate by age, uh, and you can see how you're doing. Well, and our sponsor, Fidelity, has these benchmarks that say that mm-hmm. by age 30, you're supposed to have put aside one times your annual income for retirement, by 40, three times, by 50, six times, by 60, eight times, and by retirement. 10 times, and I know a number of other firms have similar things that just give you something to shoot for. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I think that's it sets um, a reference point that you can compare against. I think often when you compare against other Americans, as the, as the research paper shows, we're well, well behind those benchmarks. Yeah. Yeah, many of us. Absolutely. One of the things that you raise in your paper is the idea of delaying retirement and how powerful that can actually be, how powerful working just a little bit longer can be. We are living longer. It makes sense. I mean, to me, I'm 53 years old. I think about 65 and would I want to retire at 65? And I think no, although I know some people do. But for me, no. Can you talk about why this is something to consider? Sure. Well, first, let me say, I hope that you never retire so I can keep following your work. Oh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> thank retire- you. So, so retirement age is so powerful for, for three reasons. Um, first, because it means often delaying when you take Social Security, right? And as you delay Social Security, it's fair and you actually get more money back from the system. That's a great thing. Second, it means more contributions into your personal savings. And then third, and also very important, it means fewer years of needing to use those savings, everything else being uh, given, though, honestly, I think actually working longer by many studies um, shows that that you can actually live a little bit longer. Our lives change so drastically. And for some people, it's very unhealthy if you when you stop working. But anyway, uh, those those are the three main reasons. It keeps us happier. I mean, there's a lot of research. It keeps us happier and healthier and more, yeah, more engaged. Just the isolation alone in retirement, I've been told, for some people, is the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So there's that. You also point to cutting your standard of living to 40%. Can you explain that? Yeah. So you can think of it like, like this, that if we do nothing... If most Americans stay on, if Americans stay on the current path, current savings, um, uh, and, and actually I use some very, very optimistic assumptions in the research. Let's say Social Security is fully funded. Let's say the pensions that people have, oh yeah, they're going to continue. Let's say that people never have a period of unemployment, right, from where they are through through uh, up to retirement. So these very, very optimistic assumptions, and there are quite a few more. In, in the paper. Um, and this is to show just how dire it is, even with optimistic assumptions. If we stay on that current path, what's going to happen? Well, the only thing that can give is how much money you have in retirement, if you change nothing else. And that means a radical change in your standard of living. Now, it's going to vary by person, but you can see, for example, that if you were to intentionally cut your standard of living to 40%, of your pre-tax final salary, then, well, 84% of people would be okay, meaning they would reach that 40% threshold. Mm-hmm. That means a good 16%. They're still not even, they're, they're living on even less than that. So this is a dire outcome that will occur for most Americans 
if we don't take any action. Well, so we don't want this, right? No, I mean, clearly this not. is not what we want. So in our last minute or so, just mm-hmm. a couple of takeaways. I mean, what save more, save more, save more sounds good, but can you say it better? Sure. Do, what, what do we do to make this better? We all know that we should save more, we should invest, etc. The challenge is that we so often focus on just one thing because it's so vivid and like, oh, okay, I, maybe I can just never retire. But instead, the key lesson from this paper is that if you look at just one thing, it's really extreme. Cut standard of living 40%, delay retirement by 10 years, contribute 20% of your income. But there's a reason for hope, and it's, and it's really quite powerful. When you combine these levers, relatively modest changes can help Americans do well. For example, if we contribute at least six, just a minimum of 6% mm-hmm. for retirement and delayed our retirement by two years to, to minimum 67, that would help over 70% of Americans be okay. Going from 25 up to 70. That's Two huge. moderate changes. Yeah, when you add in a third level, when you add in a fourth, when you do small things together, they're tremendously powerful. In other words, when we can avoid that behavioral bias of just focusing on one thing and being paralyzed, having a broader view, looking at the many things you can do at the same time, then actually we can be okay. It was really a wonderful finding and enheartening for me as a researcher coming out of this paper. Well, we started this show with a thud, but we're going to end it on an up note. I I think that's really an optimistic way to look at it. Small changes combined habitually, and you're going to be okay. For many Americans, that's, that's exactly right. Dr. Steve Wendell, thank you so much for doing this today. This was a treat. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the time. And we will be back with our mailbag in just a moment. Kelly is with me in the studio. Kelly Haldgren, our producer. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am fine. So I know I geek out a little bit about all the data and the behavior stuff. Mm -hmm. It really resonates with me. How about with you? I mean, all of it's really important for me to start internalizing. I don't think about my future in the way of saving for retirement. I save for my future because I know I'm supposed to. That's why. I don't have emotional connection with the idea of this idea of retirement. But what I took away from this, and we will be doing a story on Mm -hmm. this shortly because I thought it was really interesting and also very new, this idea that you don't have to be so focused on saving for retirement. You can just be focused on being an awesome saver Mm -hmm. in today's world compared to everybody else. And essentially that takes the Kardashian effect Mm -hmm. and makes it a force for good. (laughs) I love that. Uh, No. And so that's great then for my case. And I still struggle with the cutting your what, what is it? It's the 40%. No, no, no. He's not saying that. I mean, the way that he wrote the paper, mm-hmm. and we should really clarify this because it came clear at the end. The way that he wrote the paper, he presented the nuclear options first, mm-hmm. essentially. He said, well, if you don't do anything, mm-hmm. then you're either going to have to work 10 years longer or you're going to have to cut your standard of living to the bone or you're going to have to, I, I forget what his third one was, but what he said to do instead 
is use the same levers, just adjust each of them slightly in concert. So work six months longer, maybe work a year longer, maybe save a little bit more rather than saving 20% of your income was the third lever, which is really, really hard for people. Yes. But if instead of saving 3%, you could save 6%, oh, all of a sudden the needle starts to move. And if instead of living at 85% of your total spending before retirement, maybe you get closer to 70%. So he's saying, don't pick one from column A or column B or column C. Pick them all yep. and just use them in a softer way. And I like that message. And something I also thought that was really important from his research is the idea of taking a more personal approach or individualized approach for your contributions or? Well, yeah, the default contribution rate in a lot of 401k programs, mm -hmm. 403b programs, retirement plans at employers is a problem because mm -hmm. when the Pension Protection Act was passed in 2006 and that enabled employers to automatically enroll people, people automatically enrolled employees at a 3% contribution rate. And they did it, I've been told, because 3% was just the example that was used in the literature. Oh, wow. And so everybody just assumed it was the standard and went with it, and it became the standard, but it's not good enough. Even a matched 3% at 6% doesn't get you. You hear me talking about how much we need to save, and it's always at a minimum 10%, but preferably 15 including those matching dollars. 3% is a long way from that. So far. and But even so that 15%, according to a study, like 15% for one family or one person could be dramatically different, or it could carry someone dramatically or carry much someone further. differently much further than another person at 15%. Well, and just look at housing, right? Mm -hmm. So much of our money goes to housing. If you are one of those people who by the time you retire has actually paid off the mortgage and you continue to live in that house, your cost of living drops dramatically, mm -hmm. right? Your your cost of housing, yes, you still have to pay the taxes and the insurance and the maintenance, but you don't, you're not making a mortgage payment. That's a huge, huge difference. All right, what do we have for questions. questions? First question is from Julia. I'm leaving my job for a new one in about a month. I have a retirement account with my current job plus a separate Roth IRA that I personally contribute to monthly. My retirement account through my current job has a conservative portfolio and is not super sensitive to market changes, whereas I have more control over my Roth IRA and have my portfolio set at 90% stocks and 10% bonds. Once I leave, should I roll over my job's retirement account into my riskier Roth IRA? Should I roll it into a traditional IRA? I think my job's retirement account is tax-deferred. Or should I let it sit in the more conservative portfolio? For context, I plan on being in a higher tax bracket when I retire. So what's interesting to me about this question is that you probably have a lot more control over the individual portfolios than you think you do. Hmm. That 401k that's invested in a conservative option at some point along the way, it's my guess that you chose that conservative option, Julia, and you just stuck with it. Similarly, you can make changes at any time about how you want to invest the money that's in your Roth. So I would say a couple of things. If you roll the money from the 401k into a Roth, 
you, you actually have to do two things. You have to roll it first into a traditional IRA, and then you have to convert that IRA to a Roth. And that involves paying taxes mm. on the money that you are converting. So I wouldn't recommend doing that unless you have money outside of retirement that you can use to pay those taxes. The second thing to look at is administrative ease. If you like where you have your Roth, if it's low fee, if it's easy to maneuver, if you like the online interface, if you like the investment options, you can roll that 401k into an IRA at the same place. It'll allow you to see everything on the same screen, and that's very nice. You can also leave it in your current employer's plan, but I wouldn't do it if it's invested. I, I would change the investment options first, and I would look at the cost of maintaining that account at that place. I'm assuming she's younger, too, given her portfolio of 90-10 for well, Roth. maybe. Maybe. So I think she's balancing. I think what she's saying uh, is this is my entire portfolio okay. because this part is 1090, then this part is 9010 to get me okay. to 5050 or whatever she wants her mix to be. But you you probably have more control than you think. If you don't have control over that 401k and it is automatically invested more conservatively than you want it to be, get it out of there. Okay. Thank you, Julia, for writing in. Now we'll do one from Caitlin. Loving the show and the Facebook group. Thank you, Caitlin. I have a question about Roth IRAs and the five-year rule. The very first retirement account I ever opened was a Merrill Lynch Roth IRA in November 2012. My dad prefers a different provider, so he set up a brokerage account for me there, which I now manage. And I'm thinking of opening a new Roth IRA at this different provider and rolling over the full balance of my original Merrill Lynch account into it to reduce the number of screens and logins. I want to make sure I avoid any penalties, and I don't want to lose the advantage of having a Roth IRA that has been open for five years already. How does the five-year rule affect this decision? Also, do I have to convert to cash first, or can I just roll over the securities in place? The five-year rule does not apply. That's for withdrawals, and you can just roll the money right over. You don't have to sell the securities. So call the new provider, ask them to start the transfer and execute it for you. You don't want to take possession of this money, but you won't have to. You can just move it from one into the other and be done. So I had to Google what the five-year rule was. What is the five-year rule? The five-year rule is about taking gains. Money that you put into a Roth IRA has already been taxed. And so you can get the money back out of a Roth IRA, but the gains on that money can only be withdrawn without penalty after five years for a couple of specific purposes. Okay, thank you. That's what I was taking away from online, but I wasn't sure. And it could, it does apply to me. I have a Roth IRA. And we'll do one more from Rob. My husband and I are in our late 50s. I have been considering long-term healthcare policies. My question is, would it be better to take $100,000? We just got inheritance money. And yes, most of it is invested with our financial advisor in the market earning money and create our own safe account for healthcare versus buying a policy. Wondering what your thoughts are. How old did she say she was? No way. Oh, late 50s. I would price this out. But my guess is that 
you will be better off buying a long-term care policy or a hybrid life insurance policy that gives you the ability to use the benefits for the long-term care than investing the money yourself if this is specifically what you want the money for. Now, you will do this knowing that if you don't use the money for health care, for long-term care in the future, you won't have that $100,000 anymore if you go with the traditional policy. But because you are putting that money on the line, you'll get a bigger bucket of long-term care usable funds. And if that's what you think the money is needed for, that's how I would do it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I've never heard of someone creating their own safe account for healthcare. Well, people do it all the time. I mean, if you are a wealthy person mm-hmm. and you have your assets invested, often the calculation is I'm not going to buy a long-term care policy because I think that the income that spills off of my portfolio will be enough to pay for the at-home care or the nursing home care or whatever I need. If you don't have a lot in assets um, and you think you won't be able to continue to pay the premiums on a long-term care policy, it doesn't make sense to get into it in the first place. And so Looking at that Mm $100,000, what that may enable her to do is use the money to buy some sort of a single-pay policy. You want to talk to an agent who specializes in long-term care. Often the same agents specialize in long-term care and life insurance. And um, look at what the premium, what sort of premiums that will cover, not just now, but for the long term. That makes sense. Thank you, Jean. Thanks, Kelly, and thanks, everybody, for your questions. And now in our weekly Thrive segment, since we started the show with a little bit of financial psychology, we are going to end with some. We've reported before that using cash can be better for your bottom line than using plastic because when we see the money leave our wallets, it's just more painful. It's more real, so we tend to use less of it. That's why Aaron Lowry, author of Broke Millennial and a former guest on this show, suggests going on a cash diet if you're trying to get a handle on your spending. You probably won't be able to use cash for your rent or your utilities, but you can use it for day-to-day expenses. And she breaks it down this way. If you have $800 left after you pay all your bills for the month, you can take out $200 each week to spend on groceries, eating out, going to the movies, basically all the normal stuff you put on your card. As you go through the week, use only that 200 bucks, and once you've exhausted that weekly cash allotment, that is it. As for you diehard Amazon Prime shoppers, don't worry. Online shopping's not forbidden, just account for what you spend. So if you spend 20 bucks online, take that out of your wallet, put it into an envelope that can roll over into the next week. And if you decide to give this cash diet a try, or you've got other hacks of your own, we want to hear them right in and let us know how it goes. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Morningstar's Dr. Steve Wendell for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. 
Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon.